0: Asseo, welcome to of Delight, where Leah, Megan, and Amy, three American romance novelists discussing all things K-romance from a writer's lens. We fangirl over our favorite actors and actresses, talk up our trope addictions, and nerd out on K-drama deep dives. We'll throw in a few K-pop and K-skincare recs for good measure, because why not ride the Hallyu Wave all the way to shore? So grab some Deck bulky and listen to your new favorite unis. Hey everybody. Hello. Hi there. So, actually, there was something
1: I wanted to talk about, and I wanted to talk about it in the run on episode, and then we forgot. So, I live on the East Coast, and it was funny. So, I was talking to my husband a little bit about that. On the East Coast, and I feel like I can say this because I've lived here all my life, we're very like East Coast is the end all be all. Like, we think everything revolves around us, basically, because we think everything should be EST. If someone's like, oh, you know, this starts at, you know, Mountain Standard Time, I'm like, what? Who goes by that? No one goes by MST. Like, it's everything's EST. What are you talking about? So, to me, when someone says you have an accent, I'm like, no, I don't. I talk normal. Okay. I talk normal English. I don't have an accent. Run on. And then I know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, Amy has an accent. She's from Chicago. She's got a Chicago accent, but I don't have an accent. (laughs) (laughs) And then I started listening. Obviously, we listen to our podcast because we want to know how we sound. And we then praise Amy's excellent editing. So I'm like listening to the podcast (laughs) and I'm like, holy crap, I have like I have an accent. Like I do clearly say things completely different from Amy and Leah. And it's like I'm not
0: right. You're not the be all end all because we say it differently.
1: It's not that you guys have an accent; It's that we all say things with a different dialect. It's like I had to like get that through my head, and the main thing was that they were laughing at me because I say "run on" because One. they say "on
0: <laughs> run on." Run. Yeah, run on. So you like
1: turn on the lights? Yeah, I say turn on the lights, <laughs> and
0: <laughs> and I don't know. It was
1: just very funny because I didn't. Ne- I never thought about how I said on. I just never. I just. <laughs> Well, Let's say it's a signature. It's a signature uh, word you've got. <laughs> I guess. But it was just really funny because when I was talking to my husband about it, he was like, we're the worst here on the East Coast because we, we just think everything revolves around us. Like, we think everything should be as and it's so true. And that's why I was like, I need to realize that, you know, it doesn't don't actually really- think about you on the West Coast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Or in the Midwest. But you know what would be fun? You could turn our podcast into a drinking game. And every time Megan says on, you take a drink of soju. You would be drunk <laughs> in like four minutes. <laughs> I turned on the podcast. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway,
1: I just never thought about how I said on. And yeah, I think I like the way you guys say on. It sounds so fancy. On? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Very
1: fancy. This is it's my like end. It's a simple word. And I'm like, oh, you guys sound fancy. Well, speaking of fancy
2: pronunciation, just really quickly. So, you know, my kids are australian american but have been like raised in the usa even though they've got their australian passports and whenever we go to australia or like you know they're talking to like their grandparents this has just come up not recently recently but it was like on my mind because my daughter's been learning her abcs and it's like mastered it now hooray and when you get to the mm-hmm. end it's like xyz but in australia they say Z,
1: which seems like Z. Sweet. yeah no she
2: doesn't she says z but i can see that like every time she does it like nick or like sometimes his parents are like like yeah it's like a tick it's like zed, zed little little one like join the zed side so it's always funny because now i try sometimes i'm like x y zed and then she's like no and i'm like
0: yeah i mean i will say it does can really I rhyme. just say that when you said your daughter's learning her ABCs I forgot for a second that you have a kindergarten daughter and I was like she's learning her ABCs because I was thinking <laughs> my middle <of> day. yeah <laughs> yeah you're like um she's
1: going into
0: fifth grade yeah. um she reads <laughs> Korean <laughs> subtitles shows so. right so I was like hmm well,
1: then to bring it to like I guess Korean entertainment sometimes I watch videos of, of stray kids who we've talked about on this podcast a lot and several of them are from Australia and so it's kind of funny because you you can clearly hear that some of the stray kids who don't really speak English, but they're obviously picking up English words. But some of them s- talk now with a little bit of an Australian accent. Yeah, exactly. because um, they're learning they're because learning they're learning the it from, from like, their Australian I mean, wouldn't that's yeah. what you would do. You'd be like picking it yeah. up from who you hear it from, which would be exactly, you know, but they were talking of how they say they say no, because they say no or, or you probably can. Yeah, yeah no, no, <laughs> no, I can't. I can't That's really true, do it. It's like about. how Nick would say tuna. He says
2: tuna tuna and tuna. Tuna. Like I'm gonna have some tuna. And then no, 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 no. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Nick has such a soothing voice though, because you had showed us that like recording he did. I, I remember that good he, voice. Does. he should be like a voice actor for kids' books or something. It was very soothing.
0: <laughs> but anyway.
1: Unless he's bitching at me about leaving the car door open. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Anywho, what are we talking? Oh, about? <laughs> yeah. What are we talking about today? Villains, bad guys.
1: So I have like almost chills to start this podcast. I'm very excited. I think K dramas do excellent villains, so let's get into it. Nothing makes a good drama great like a well rounded antagonist. Villains should always be written as heroes of their own story, so they need their own motivations and conflicts beyond just being bad or evil. Author Sasha Black wrote the book 13 Steps to Evil How to Craft Super Bad Villains. She penned five tips for creating believable villains, which will summarize so all of you listening have context on what criteria we here at Afternoon of Delight are using to highlight our favorite villains. Number one understand their why. Why are they doing what they are doing? Typically, this is because of past experiences that color how they see the world. So maybe they have always believed their parents favored their older sibling, and so they justify their bad deeds as they're making things fair. Number two, motive and goal. The goal of the villain is what he wants, and usually it's something tangible like a job as the CEO of the company or to be crowned king. The motive is why they want it, whether it's money or that they believe they're the rightful heir to the throne. Without a motive, there is no conflict. So think of this equation Y plus motive equals villain's action, which in turn causes our hero's reaction. Three. Make the conflict specific. What is the harm in the villain getting what he wants? It has to be important enough, i.e. mass casualties of innocence for the hero to step in. Like, obviously, if the only harm is maybe he wants to, like, tear down some old building that no one cares about, that doesn't really matter. So you want to make the conflict something very big and that people care about so that the audiences root for the hero. Number four, no tropes from cliches. Cliches would be old and tired details, while tropes are patterns that appear in your genre, such as a magic weapon. in in a fantasy or star-crossed lovers in a romance. Number five, make your villain unbeatable. No one wants to read or watch an easy victory, so make him an expert at something like a skilled fighter or technology genius. So we're going to talk about three dramas today that gave us villains we felt were very worthy adversaries to our favorite heroes. So please note, we'll have spoilers upcoming for Lawless Lawyer, The King Eternal Monarch, and Tale of the Nine-Tailed. And before we get
2: to it, a few friendly reminders. Make sure to subscribe wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a review and tell us something you liked about the show today. We aren't just here to talk to ourselves, so want to make sure we're giving you the content you enjoy. Also, follow us on Instagram at Afternoon Delight Podcast for all the show ratings that don't make it on the pod, book recs, behind-the-scenes fun, and generally shameless fangirling. And if you want to message us about anything you heard on the show, email us at Podcast at gmail.com.
1: So I am going to talk about on Oju, who is from Lawless Lawyer and was played by Choi Min Su. So to be honest, I've been waiting for this episode to discuss our favorite villains because after watching Lawless Lawyer, I could not get On Oju out of my head. As much as I really did love the cast, and as much as I loved Lee Junji as the hero, Bong Sang Pil, the character who made the biggest impression on me was An Oju. So he is a toe sock wearing dirty, fighting, (laughs) murdering, tattooed gangster who rises from the slums to the owner of a successful corporation and eventually is appointed the mayor of the fictional town of Kisung, which is where Lawless Lawyer takes place. So... On Oju's why is that he never wants to return to the slums again. It's mentioned several times that he is really trying to rise up from where he was born. And so his motivation basically is he no longer wants to be seen as a gangster. He wants to be a respected and powerful figure in Kisung. So his goal as mayor he wants to spearhead the Golden City Project, which is a developmental effort. And this will not only bring him wealth, as he made a whole lot of underhanded deals to buy up otherwise worthless property, but he will also be seen as a savior of Kisung. That was also important to it. It wasn't just about the money for him. I mean, it was about the money, but it was also he wanted the credit. He really liked talking in front of the cameras. So he wanted to be, yeah, he wanted to be the savior. So the conflict. on Oju isn't the only villain of Lawless Lawyer. He's actually sort of the sub-villain, but to me, he had the best story. So he is essentially the fixer for Cha Moon Suk, who is a powerful judge of Kisoo who has her own ambitions, and she's the ultimate baddie of the drama. So he did all her dirty work, including killing the mother of the hero, Bong Sang-pil, 18 years ago. Cha Moon-suk is the reason he's appointed mayor, but it also put him on a collision course with Bong Sang-pil, who has returned to Kisung to get revenge for his mother. So ahn Oju is charismatic and deadly. I honestly cannot get his toe socks out of my head okay so there's a shot where he is at his like desk that's when he was still the ceo of his company before he was mayor and he has his feet propped up on his desk and i couldn't figure out why his feet were blue like i can't i honestly like rewound it like three times i'm like why are he literally has blue feet and it's because he was wearing toe socks (laughs) his blue toe socks but they were like tight and they, do you know what I'm saying? It didn't look like he was wearing socks and it freaked me out. And then I realized throughout the whole like drama, he would always kind of be in his office with his shoes off and like massaging his own feet. Ugh, I really, yep, nope, nope, nope. I know, but that's, this is, this is my point though. It was like, he had a lot of these weird quirks that made him even creepier. Like the toe sock thing. Like whose idea was it to give him these toe socks and also have him like massaging his feet and his toes like, throughout the drama? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that is up there with the mole for me. Like, Yeah, it's so weird. It, is, it was yeah. so weird. And it it happened numerous times. It was, like, it was like a character. He like loved his toe socks. So he had this quirk he did where, or maybe kind of almost like a tick, but he would like poke his tongue inside his cheek, but like really quick and he would do it before he talked to you be like uh and then he'd start and he had this like sort of almost like low uh way of talking and every time he did it i would get like chills cuz i'm like oh shit he's about to like kill someone or he's about to do some bad stuff like he is bad guys okay <laughs> he kills people he beats them up just if they make him angry i mean he is bad but he also again had this very clear motivation. So he is an expert fighter and he has a way of speaking that is just truly transformative. So I've seen the actor Choi min Su in real life. Like I've seen some videos of him and he's pretty much like unrecognizable as On Oju. So his motivation to be seen as respected and to overcome his violent past is relatable, especially as the drama progresses, he starts to show some vulnerability. This is what I love about him as a villain is he's so bad. Like, clearly. Like, they, they are never trying to make him good, but they're also showing his motivation so well. So, ultimately, Cha Moon Sook is like a puppeteer pulling his strings. But soon, he begins to cut each string on his own and start making his own moves. And that's when he started to be even more interesting because once he was no longer just her, like, she called him her dog, several times like she would say to him like you're my dog which means you don't bite until I tell you and he basically started biting on his own and that's also when he got just so much more interesting when the drama got more interesting because sometimes he would almost side with the hero but He still wanted to kill him. It was just really good. So I alternately rooted for him while also wanting to see him pay for his like many past crimes because he was a terrible person. So I do have a favorite scene of his that I want to talk about. One thing I love is when the hero and villain see each other as worthy adversaries. And I feel like while it took a while to get there, um, Oju and Sangpil began to like begrudgingly respect each other. So they had a relationship where they wanted the other dead, but they wanted to be the ones to do it. Like, you know, Ahn Oju didn't want anyone else to kill Bong Sang-pil. He wanted to do it himself and vice versa. So there's a scene where Oju visits Sang-pil at the hospital while he's recovering from a stab wound. So it is a really tense scene. Both characters are tense. And I brace for a fight, worried for, you know, my Sang-pil, my hero, because he was already injured. And then suddenly the hospital lights go off and all the security cameras are shut down and a bunch of... Black wearing gangsters invade the hospital and they're hired by Chamun Suk to take out Sang Pil and Oju, who are both there together. So the best part is that all the gangsters rush in the room and Sang Pil and Oju are just like sitting there and they kind of look at each other and it's just like they speak with their eyes and they're like, let's do it. And they fight side by side. So they take out all the gangsters. They refuse to be killed by anyone else. They take out the gangsters. One by one. And I mean, it's like dirty, violent. It's an amazing action scene because like Sang Pil's still in his like, I don't know, his hospital stuff. <laughs> and they fight side by side as they battle their way out of the hospital. And it's just such a cool scene because they call a truce, but it's completely temporary because they know the next time they meet, they're going to want to kill each other. So I honestly just, I I miss the drama. I'm not going to tell you what happens to Anoju at the end. I really think the drama is worth watching. Just for one of the best villains in K drama that I've seen. I love when a
0: villain and a hero are forced to team up. You know, it makes me think of like Kylo Ren and Rey having to team up in whatever the name of the last Star Wars movie is, <laughs> Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> Rise of Skywalker. But thank But I think they team up. They team up. They team long. up. But they team up more than once, right? Yeah. Don't they? They, they team, team up, up more in the one.
2: middle one. I would say.
0: Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I love when villain and hero have to team up together because then, especially if it's a complicated villain. Like you're saying, like, Megan, how you kind of understood where he was coming from and stuff like that, and that you get to see his motivation and get to really understand him. And we'll talk about it more when we get to another question later. But this idea of, like, sympathy and empathy, you know, for a villain. And I I think it's possible to have that sometimes, even if you don't agree with them. Right. It's
1: So, I mean, this is the thing about Anno Ju. Like I said, he was a terrible person, but he talks a lot about how he was born in the slums he didn't know where his next meal was going to come from he had no family and he felt like the only way out was to be a criminal i mean that was what he thought he had to do and i do think by the end or by probably like the middle of this drama he did want to be someone else that's he was trying to be someone else but his past wouldn't let him because he right. had done so many terrible things in his past and he was still doing terrible things right, like, right. I think he was he was a little bit in denial but I still felt for him because there was a point in the drama where he was completely beaten down and had kind of no one but he was still like I'm going to fight for myself. Like, I'm going to make my own moves. And I kind of love that, too, when he was like, I'm not going to be anyone's dog anymore. You know, I'm my own man. So that's why I felt so conflicted because I was like, I want you to die and like, where at least like go to jail. But I also... Uh like that's that's just why I just felt so like a lot of times when I'm watching dramas, when they keep showing scenes of the villains, sometimes I'm like, uh, another like scene where a villain's like, you know, steepling his fingers <laughs> in his office plotting. And you know, I kind of like I feel like those are really repetitious. But the thing with Ano Ju is I was like, show more of him. I actually want more of the villain because he was making like he was making moves. It wasn't just like him in an he was just so compelling. And so hats off to Choi min su who played him because he played the heck out of the character like if you would just watch some clips you'd see what i mean about the guy's like facial tics like ah just so freaking fascinating so yeah anyway so my question oju was fighting for something he never had respect and power while many villains fight not to lose what they already have so what do you think is more compelling fighting for something or fighting not to lose something
0: Okay, so I think fighting for something they never had because they have this delusion that all will be right with their world if they just have this one thing. You know, the idea of like the grass is always greener. And I feel like that is even more motivating than fighting not to lose what they already have because a lot of times if villains have something worthwhile, they likely got it through nefarious means in the first place. Like I think about Lee Jae Kyung from My Love from the Star, which... Megan, I know you haven't seen it, so I won't talk too much about that. We are going to do a deep dive on that. But he was fighting to keep his place as CEO. But once you see the drama, you see that he only got there by doing some unspeakable things anyway. So that made him sort of one note for me. You know, he was never truly deserving of what he was fighting for. And because of that, the motivation kind of falls flat to me compared to fighting for what a villain has never had. Because at the end, when the villain is hopefully vanquished it's all the more satisfying that he or she basically never gets to taste that sweet success that they think they deserve. Like kind of like what you're saying about Anoju, you know, this pulling yourself up from the bootstraps kind of mentality, but in the wrong way. And so you know that this person was kind of you know, pushed into this life, but you feel for them like you've been saying, but then they keep doing these horrible, horrible things. And at the end, it's like, it's a victory that they lose, but it's also you have a lot of emotion invested in it. So for me, I'm going to take another tact,
2: which although I really appreciate, Amy, what you said and think that there's a lot of merit to it, like when I was thinking about this question, I think what hit me was more the losing what they had, probably because we did do a healer deep dive somewhat recently, and it was making me think a bit about moon sick who i thought was a really great villain and i think that like you know you had touched on this with my love from another star too but that the idea that you know here's a person who basically made a deal with the devil so to speak and in doing so gained everything that he could have ever wanted from fame to respect to the woman he had always loved except for the fact that that entire thing was built on a lie. And then when you start pulling on the house of cards, the whole thing begins to tumble. And I kind of like that desperation of like, you've done so much and compromised so much that, you know, at that point, you're willing to do unthinkable things to like, keep it all together. And, you know, in Healer's case, it would be like Sick, willing to you know, keep a sociopathic toady on the payroll with an evil (laughs) giggle who likes to try to murder young girls in elevators. So yeah, I mean, I think honestly, at the end of the day, my real answer to the question is probably it just depends on the villain and like what their journey is. But you know, Moonstick had jumped out at me as somebody who I thought was like a complicated villain that I had enjoyed just because yeah, I don't think I like found him fun to watch kind of Megan, like how you were talking about you relished seeing the villain. I don't know if I relished seeing someone like Moonsick. It was just more that like, I felt like he was deeply effed up and complicated. <laughs> and so yes, interesting to watch in that case, even though like there was no part of me that like liked him or was rooting for him.
0: I totally agree with what you're saying is that it depends on the villain and how they're portrayed. And in Moon Sick's case, 100% agree that he was a fantastic villain clawing at anything to keep what he had. Yeah, I do think it's how they're portrayed. Whereas in My Love from the Star, the way that that villain was portrayed he never seemed in danger of losing anything Mm -hmm. yet he was still getting everybody out of his way who could possibly be in his way kind of thing yeah he was much Um,
2: more one
1: note
0: yeah i always love the desperation like when the villain is like either
1: he feels what he wants is like just within his grasp and he just has to make like one last desperate grab or he knows he's about or she is about to lose it and they do like one last desperate act. That's always kind of my favorite moment. I was waiting for it in Into the Ring, which I just finished, and I got it in the last episode and it did feel good. <laughs> I just always love when they're yeah, when they're desperate. Now let me, that makes me sound like a psychopath, but whatever.
0: No, I think it's I think <laughs> it's a well-portrayed villain when it's that situation. Yeah. So absolutely. Again, Lawless Lawyer
1: is a really great drama. The romance is most definitely like a subplot, but it was fine. It just wasn't, it didn't like give me a lot of feels or anything, but I loved, love, love Lee Junji as Bong Sang-pil. And like I said, if you want just, an amazing complicated villain. Check it out. And not to get all into the recent
2: tea, but I'm wondering when you're talking about like the fact that the romance was kind of lacking. This was the drama that Yeo Seiji was doing during the whole, you know, whatever went down that we don't really know or need to know about between her and Kim Jong-hyun.
1: Yeah, I'm almost positive this is the drama she was filming. And I mean, it was just, like I said, it was okay. But I didn't feel like either of them were all in on that romance. The the care, I feel like they were just like, oh, we're supposed to be together because the script says so. Okay, <laughs> like you know what I mean? It wasn't. This it wasn't that exciting. But it was again. It was fine. Like it's not like I disliked the romance. Does that make sense? It just didn't yeah. like make me have all these feels. They tried to like put some faded bits into it that just fell flat. You
2: know, I don't know. I feel like the faded has been played so hard that sometimes right. it's not my favorite.
1: Yeah. And this one just fell a little flat, but again, I mean, it was okay, but I'm just saying it wasn't the best, you know, romantic drama I've ever seen. But as far as action goes, I mean, Lee Junji does some pretty awesome action scenes. I mean, he literally will take out, he took out like two dozen guys by himself in one scene, completely unbelievable, but I didn't care. It was amazing. Cause he's a, he's kind of like a slight man, you know, like he doesn't look what I would picture like i guess i would say like an american with like a nicholas cage
2: so to speak Oh no, <laughs>
1: yeah. I three, mean, for three. Like <laughs> three for three i'm going
2: every episode
1: he's not like matt damon or chris evans or anything like that he's very thin but he's like i mean in real life i i know he's like has he's skilled fighter in many different disciplines and it clearly shows because he's like incredible to watch in a fight scene like i was captivated Watching this man in the fight scenes. And I did, I think I heard he did all his own stunts. And it's like totally believable. I mean, fantastic. So he really played the crap out of his role as well. I mean, he yelled, Anoju, like <laughs> throughout the whole thing. Like after, while I was watching this drama, I would fall asleep at night with like him yelling Anoju in my head because he yelled it all the time. And Anoju would yell, Bunks si and You know, I think I talked enough about how great it was. So yeah, if you haven't looked into Lawless
0: Lawyer yet, please do just for Anoju. And now it's time for our favorite segment, our K Recommendation of the Week. And this week we have Leah with a K Skincare rec.
2: So I want to talk to you all today about a product that I use every night. And it is the Freshly Juiced Vitamin E Mask from Claire's, And that is Claire's with a K. And this is a lightweight overnight mask. It is full of vitamin E, which is an antioxidant known to slow down cell aging. I think what I like about it is that it's got this very weird pudding kind of texture to it. So like when you scoop it out, For whatever reason, this brings me great pleasure. It like settles again, like this surface that like nothing was marred, you know, because I kind of always feel like it's a bummer when you open up product and like the stuff you can scoop out. and You're like, oh, like, you know, you can tell you've been digging at it like a badger for a while. Like that happens to me with a lot of my cream, whereas this. It just always looks fresh and new. So I'm always like, oh, how pretty it is. And then it kind of like gets on your face and clings in this way that's like a little bit sticky. So that's why I think it's good for overnight. But it just like, I don't know what it does, but it soaks in. And I just feel like it's a really nice kind of just like full face cream to put on at bed to like wake up with this moisturized, hydrated glow. So that recommendation, again, which we are not sponsored for, we just recommend products on the show that we like is the freshly juiced vitamin E mask from Claire's with a K. I just ordered it.
0: I want to try it. (laughs) I'm totally going to try it.
2: (laughs) Well, I will say that this is one product that as I'm starting to like run down on it, I order it because I don't want to run out ever.
0: So our next villain that we are going to be talking about is Lee Rim from the King Eternal Monarch played expertly by the fabulous Lee Jung Jin. As you've probably gathered from previous episodes of the pod, I love this drama and have been dying to talk about it in any way, shape, or form. We have a deep dive coming up, and I also mentioned this drama on our most recent snack where we talked about endings we wanted to rewrite, and I'm so thrilled to get to talk about one fantastic part of King today, which is our villain. Also, Lee Jung Jin plays two roles in this drama because there's doppelgangers and we've got parallel universes. So one is the villain, Lee Rim, who is the former king's illegitimate brother in the kingdom of Korea with a C, and his doppelganger, Lee Song Jae, a man in a catatonic vegetative state in our universe's Republic of Korea with a K. Not only is he playing this excellent villain, but he's playing two roles for much of the drama. So hats off to him. So let's talk about Lee Rim's why. I think I already gave it away. Lee Rim is Korea with the seas royal family's illegitimate son, and that is motivation for many, many villains throughout K dramas. He can't stand to see his brother, and this is Lee Min Ho's character's father at first. So. Lee Rim is the king, Lee Min Ho, it's his uncle. So he can't stand to see his brother as king, not only because he covets the title, but also because he covets a magical flute called the Man Pasikjuk, which can repel enemies bring prosperous weather, cure diseases, etc. It's a very powerful magical flute. And according to a confession from our villain in the first episode, the flute only appears once every 20 years to bring peace and prosperity to the world. But since the sitting king seemed to not believe in the flute's magic... Lee Rim murdered his brother to take the flute and the kingdom for himself. He tells us all of this while in a police interrogation room in our Republic of Korea, where he claims to have been born in 1951, yet only looks like he is 40 years old because the flute also keeps him from aging normally. So we now know that there is an element of time travel or slowing time down as far as the flute's powers. Basically, Lee Rim's why is very, very clear. The flute. His initial goal in murdering his brother was simply to obtain the flute and all the power that went with it. But his coup goes wrong. When he attempts to kill young Li Gon, which is Lehman Ho's character after Lee Rim has killed his own brother, an unidentified intruder appears to save Li Gon and foil Lee Rim's plan. The flute gets cut in half and Lee Rim escapes with his one half. Half the flute has some power, like opening the door to a parallel world, but not enough. So Lee Rim's goal for the rest of the drama is to find and reclaim the second half, making the flute whole. He uses his ability to travel between worlds to manipulate doppelgangers to help him achieve his goal, including making the kingdom of Korea think he is dead. And it becomes one big mind F of a drama in the best way. But of course, we've got some conflict for the villain. Grown-up Lee Gon is now king, and for 25 years, he's been obsessed with finding out who saved him that fateful night that his father was murdered by his uncle, Lee Rim. He thinks it's our heroine, Jung Taol, played by the ass-kicking Kim go eun because her ID badge was left at the scene when he was rescued. The only problem is that his life was saved back in 1993, and when he finally meets up with tae in her Korea, Republic of Korea with a K, after he first passes through the bamboo forest gates, she's right around his current age in present day, which should be impossible, unless time travel is involved. A big old hot math nerd, Lee Gong continues to investigate and try to figure out how he and Taol are connected, and in doing so, uncovers that his murderous uncle isn't exactly dead and that he is planning to stage another coup. But this time, Li Gong vows to stop him. And as far as what the harm would be in letting Lee Rim get what he wants, if we you know, think about the criteria for a villain and what would be the harm in letting him get what he wants, as in the flute... You can see throughout the drama why someone such as him should never possess that kind of power because even when he only has half of it, he's a murderous, manipulative madman in the best, most entertaining way. Lee Rim seems unbeatable. He's been using the flute for 25 years and supplanting doppelgangers where he needs them. He's been a virtual ghost up until present day, carefully and methodically planning to take what he lost in his first attempt at the coup. Even when Lee Gon and Lee Rim come face to face in the streets of Busan, the bad guy is right there and should be captured on sight. Lee Rim reveals he has a small army of followers who take aim at civilians in the streets. If Lee Gon fights back, innocent people will die. And so our villain not only reveals himself to his nephew, but also shows that he is, for the time being, untouchable. How can Lee Gon win? And my favorite scene kind of goes along with this idea of Lee Rim being unstoppable. And it's the one that I just mentioned. When Lee Gon is atop his horse, Maximus, because, of course... That is his horse's name, and I love him atop his big white steed. It's nighttime, it's snowing, his security detail has guns pointed at Lee Rim and his goons. It's so tense, and I think such a huge turning point for Lehman Ho's character in realizing how bad things truly are and how far he will need to go to beat his uncle. So this face-off in the street, ooh, I just said (laughs) (laughs) face-off. not face-off with John Travolta and Nick Cage. But the face-off in the street is really, really tense and really beautifully shot. You know, we'll talk a lot about the cinematography of the King Eternal Monarch, but I just love this scene because you're like, oh my gosh, the drama can end right here. Like they can beat the bad guy. And you find out that the bad guy has been planning his revenge in getting what he wants for 25 years. And he's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve. So I know that you've both seen this drama. So I know you both know who Lee Rim is. And I think Lee Jung Jin, the actor, aside from being fabulous at portraying a villain, is also a very good looking villain. And so I was thinking, what makes a stronger bad guy or gal? A handsome or beautiful villain like Lee Rim? Or someone harder to look at, like, say, someone with a big hairy mole on their neck.
1: Yeah, I love a sexy villain. And I mean, because I I like that, like, kind of conflicting feelings then. Like, I like being like, oh, my God, like, kind of attracted to them, but yet they're evil. And I also don't love kind of the cliche that evil means ugly or a handicap in some way. And then, you know... Good is pretty. I I just I dislike that. So I love it when it's like a super sexy villain because it just feels fun and and fresh. And yeah, as a viewer, I like having multiple feelings, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so that's my favorite.
2: Yeah. And I agree with all of that, Megan. Personally, I was still kind of set to go with like the healer's elder just because it was a leading question. And you know, (laughs) that that mole of horror really like lives on for me. But okay. So then I started watching a K-drama called Strangers from Hell which I will be talking about a little bit more on the show. And this is not a spoiler. This is essentially the drama. Lee Dong-wook plays a serial killing psychopathic dentist who dabbles in cannibalism. And y'all, like, Lee Dong-wook is hot. Just objectively hot. And we have seen him in many dramas now. And we, I think, can all concur he is hot. However, he is still hot even when he is plucking up raw strips of human flesh with metal chopsticks and placing them between his perfectly red lips and with that my mind was fucked and i am (laughs) going to say that (laughs) good-looking villains mess me up because this drama he is so evil and it's still like hot ass, ethereal Lee Dong Wook. And like, I feel like my brain is just completely scrambled eggs right now.
0: So that's my thought too. Like, I like a sexy villain, but I think it makes the whole villain thing even more complex because how is it okay for me to be attracted to this person when they are doing such terrible things? And this was me and I can't wait till I get to our deep dive because this was me the whole way through watching Suspicious Partner because... The extreme talent that is Dong Ha, like, I can't even tell you. He was so methodically bad and (laughs) murdery. And all I could think the whole time watching the drama is, I want to see this guy as a romantic hero. So I have a thing for sexy villains, but yeah, it makes it a lot more complex because then I'm like, what is the matter with me that he can do these terrible things? And I'm still like, you are hot when you do those things.
2: <laughs> here's one thing that this, I, I just remember this in this conversation, which is, I think that what we are all talking about, though, is essentially, we're not talking about these becoming like anti heroes, like we are recognizing no. that they are villains in this role. like they may be hot, and we may be attracted to them, but they are bad. And so even if they're hot, we're not rooting for them. Because what this is reminding no. me of is a book that I know I read, and I'm not sure if either of you read, which was called Push by Claire Wallace. And this was a new adult book that came out around the time that we debuted. I made you tell
0: me everything about it. I made you
2: tell me
1: and I wouldn't read it. (laughs) I'm going
2: to talk about it just really quickly because I want to make this point because I think this is an important distinction. Is in this book, the hero is someone named David who is very cool, collected, sexy. And all six of his last previous girlfriends have disappeared without a trace. And we find out that David is a fucking serial killer that murders his girlfriends by binding them up and pushing them off bridges to their death spoiler alert (laughs) (laughs) and at the end of this book because it is a two-parter the heroine essentially loves the hero so much that in some ways she is complicit in her own you know we know because there's a sequel that she's going to somehow Make it, but at the end, she's pushed off the bridge. And as she falls into the abyss, she looks up at her beloved's face, who is realizing at that moment, while still smiling, because he's happy to be murdering, that he is sad because, you know she's not like all the other girls and maybe he like doesn't want her dead at the bottom of the river i don't know anyway (laughs) i just want to say that like this book made me feel upset not because i felt like that isn't a story to tell like there's also like you know you which is out and i will say that like i have unfortunately found like spooky weird parts of the internet where people like lust after you know the hero in you who is also a serial killer that's a big f no for me But it's an interesting, like, I really enjoyed you as a show. I really enjoyed you as a book even more. And so I'm just trying to say something to the lines of, yes, we're talking about the fact that we like this. But I want to just say that I would say that there's an important distinction that we're making here where we're not actually then saying, like, our romantic heroes are also serial killers. And that's just okay. Yeah, no,
0: no, no. Talking about Dong Ha's performance, he was just so good. That now I want to see him as a romantic lead in something 100%. else. Not, yeah, not rooting for him at all. <laughs> yeah, and I'm gonna say it was for me with Lee Dong
2: Wook too because I keep yeah, being like, right. oh, I am like super attracted to you, but you know, at this, not not your character. Like I can right. separate
0: like I read you as well and it was a very compelling book but at no point in reading the book did I root for Joe and want him to not be dead at the end you know like right <laughs> yeah and
1: like I I said that even when we were talking about I was talking about Anno Ju, like I was I was rooting for him only up to a point I wanted him to like break away from like the villain who was like pulling his strings I wanted him to make his own moves but I still wanted him to suffer but i just wanted more for him to suffer for like just the things he did if that makes sense like but i certainly am with you leah and amy i mean i remember us talking about that book way back when it came out which i just looked i think it was like 2017 no no, no earlier like
2: 2014
1: you yeah. anyway, right it came out in 2014. her last book came out in 2017. anyway i remember talking about that and yeah that's not that's not my jam like but i just remember like and look full disclosure like I
2: got into it a little bit with the author like behind the scenes about the book because we were in a writers group together and I don't know this writer and you know they could be a great person so I'm not trying to like disparage them but we did have a debate and the debate kind of came down to me being like look this is being marketed as a romance and I'm having a hard time this is being marketed as a romance if this was being marketed as a psychological thriller all set with that but like for me i just want to like point out that this feels really problematic that we're you know i was given an arc for it and then told it was like a romance and i was like no 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 no. like he literally is a murderer and then like the argument was kind of like but can't bad feel so good and i'm like absolutely but it's not a romance
1: right it's not yeah romance. <laughs> yeah and the cover is like a clinch cover and it still is so you know what i mean like a two people a man and a woman like almost kissing so it's clearly marketed as romance so yep nope that's not for me but i mean i love a good villain but we want we want a good villain because a good villain makes our hero even better as well exactly like a good villain is gonna make like lee rim was fantastic and he was a great adversary for lee Gon. and i liked lee rim because he was very smart very, very smart. As much as sometimes when I'm watching a show, I'm like, oh, why can't the, why can't the villain be stupid so the right. hero can win? Um, but that's not really what we want. We want to, like again, as I was I read at the beginning of the podcast, Sasha Black said, you got to make your villain a little bit unbeatable. He can't just, like, fall with, you know, one, like, little punch or something like that or one little, I don't know, something else that is right. a battle, like a computer keyboard click. I don't know. You got to, you know, it has to be, he has to be somewhat unbeatable. And Lee, Lee was that.
0: And Lee Rim being unbeatable helped elevate Lee Gon to much badassery in the later episodes of the drama. Correct. That's, yeah. We got the best scenes because Lee Rim was
1: such a good villain. because yes. it, it did, you're right. It made, because I, I said at the beginning that the villain's actions are what make the hero react, usually. So that's the thing. Lee, Lee Gon's reactions were so amazing because Lee Rim had the great actions first. Who? Writer speak. There you go. (laughs) So, okay.
2: For me, I ended up going with a bad guy that is a little bit one note, but I feel like I'm compelled to defend my choice as well. So I am going with the villain, Lee Terry, played by Lee Ryong, and that is... Amoogie from Tale of the Nine <laughs> We haven't Imugi! said a in so long, we haven't? And that where I was like, I was going along on uh, this other track, and then I'm like, you know what? Now let's Speaking do it. Of villains that like I could get it with. Let's go back to Imugi. Let's so, do it. So Amoogie, For those of you who have not watched Tale of the Nine Tailed, or may not under like may not know, because I had to learn that you know it's part of Korean mythology. They are serpentine creatures who look quite a lot like dragons, except they're more like serpenty. They're not real dragons, and they must survive 1,000 years before they can ascend to become a true dragon. In Korean mythology, they're described essentially as dragons in training. But our tale of the nine-tailed Amugi wasn't always this like serpenty dragon dragon-in-waiting. Here's the tea about him. Back at the end of the Sila dynasty, there was a noble family who had a ninth son. However, the baby was born deformed and they abandoned it by throwing it into a cave where plague victims were kept. So nice all around. We have a cave full of plague victims and we're just going to throw a baby in there. Things get better, or worse, um, because the baby was eaten in the cave by the plague victims in an act of cannibalism. So time goes on, the plague victims apparently were not sustained much by the baby, and they die (laughs) and the cave becomes a tomb. The baby boy's soul is then reborn in the cave as some sort of a white snake, and the people who saw it started calling it the Mugi. And so basically, this sad little boo was reborn as a spiritual snake being who tried to become a divine dragon, but failed for some convoluted reasons. So I'm not sure if you all picked up in the show why it hasn't ascended into a real dragon. I've read some things that like Amugi's like cannot be seen by humans. If they're seen in that thousand year period, then they cannot ascend. I don't really know, because as we see in our episode, Tale of the Nine-Tailed, nine WTFs and nine hell yeahs. There were many WTFs and much of a Mugi is tied up into these WTFs. So I don't really know what's going on with a Mugi and why it's not a dragon. Let's just roll with the fact that like at this point the why is that a Moogie's been through some shit. now he's basically just a corrupted demonic serpent being he was a cannibalized baby that became a serpent who couldn't ascend to become a dragon but he knows he's better than that deep down he feels he is meant for greatness
0: so he's
1: reading some self-help books (laughs) yeah i mean Moogie's like okay
2: you know i'm what is it? The Stuart Smiley from Serial oh, yeah. Life. I'm, I'm good, good enough, enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people don't like me so I'm going to fuck up the world and yeah. become the god of it. So that's basically the why. I mean, like it is a bit of like a Sauron or like, you know, ultimate baddie bad guy. But like, you know what? I can live with that sometimes. There's a place for those kind of bad guys. The goal is that Amugi wants to unite his body. He's currently split. This is a whole other thing. So if you don't <laughs> know, go listen to the other podcast or saddle up and watch the drama so 90 percent of himself is in this male body that is calling himself the intern terry and then 10 percent of his body is lodged in the body of Jia, who is the heroine of tell the nine-tailed he wants the nine-tailed fox or gumio li yan to sacrifice his mountain god body to save Jia. Then Amugi will get that god bod and have all the power, <laughs> rule the world, and everything will be death and plague and suffering, just like Amugi likes it. <laughs> <a> god bod! <laughs> God ah! so,
0: bot is my new favorite thing. <laughs> Oh my God, Leah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you appreciate this.
0: I,
1: I appreciate it so much. So
2: the conflict is that he's a fast growing, immortal being of pure evil who is currently moonlighting as an intern named Terry for a ghost hunter type television show where his son Bay is the heroine and does not know for most of the drama that she has part of his body inside of her. So he wants to be able to go around and keep doing his evil world ending biz but keeps getting roped into company dinners. Then he kind of <laughs> sort of tries to woo Jia as this bride of darkness on a rooftop, but she's not feeling it. And later she ditches him and jumps into a cab to escape him. So he has the power to kill all of Seoul with plague rashes and bloody eggs lodged in throats. Again, random, watch the show or listen to the podcast. But the girl who has part of his soul lodged in his body. Is not going along with his plan to use that bait to gain the body of her. <laughs> I don't even know, there's so much body <laughs> happening, and basically, she just can hail a cab to like escape his clutches. Like, I'm trying to say, is he's supposed to have so much power, and then she's like, Oh, like, in turn, not feeling this right. Oh, and then she like starts to be like, Oh, you're kind of the bad guy, like, there's something like, I kind of know you're a moogie. I'm going to just get in this cab. And Moogie's like, Oh, well, she got in the cab.
0: So shit, she's <laughs> out of here. I just um, have to say, I've seen this drama and I'm still a little lost. <laughs> right now because so much WTF free. I'm kidding, but like, I'm not like, there's no, just- no, I
2: know. So, and I'm kidding actually, because, Amugi's real conflict is that he hates the shit out of Li Yong, who beat him once 600 years ago and seems like the only being on Earth that could be capable of beating him again. Li Yong also values human life. So Amugi just decides that, you know, what he's going to do is fuck up everyone in Seoul and there's going to be plagues of hives and bloody eggs and throats and Li Yong is going to have to, like, fix that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to know the why. We don't need to know why there's eggs in throats. We just know we got to fix it. So, anyway, my favorite scene is literally anything that just has intern Amugi with his blank eyed, creepy smile and bull cut wearing a lanyard and being bossed around by his son Bay, who has part of his soul lodged in her body. Just anytime that happens. I'm into it. Again, we all know if, you, well, we don't all. I don't know where, if a listener has listened to the past podcasts or not, but Tell the Nine Tale is one of the most batshit dramas that I've seen to date, nay, the most batshit. And I urge you all to go back and listen to our nine WTFs and so nine Hell yes from this drama, because honestly, I think it's still one of my favorite podcasts. And I still don't know if it even makes sense.
1: I remember when Amy edited it, she's like, I had to edit out like, a solid 10 minutes of wheezing because we were laughing so, so hard. hard i remember i i mean i almost peed i was <laughs> i was dying laughing because like i i was like confusing myself like yeah, while we no, were the trying to describe- bring it back it's basically the bad guy wants bodies and he
2: is in bodies and there's just <laughs> lots of like i need to get this body back to my body so that i can get this other body
0: <laughs> and even though 80% of his spirit or soul is in Terry's body, it seems that the 20% that's in G.I. is the more powerful, which we find out like later on, yeah. which makes zero sense.
2: Yeah. Anyway, go back and listen to that. But here's my question is that when a villain has a sad origin story, does it make them more sympathetic? Do you agree with the idea that villains are made not born?
0: I do love a good origin story. I do think if it's a sad origin story that I will possibly have some sympathy for the villain. I don't find... Imugi's origin story to be even though he was eaten, I don't find his origin story to be enough to make me emote for him, but I really do love a good origin story and I do think it makes a villain more sympathetic when we do know where they kind of came from. It doesn't excuse their villainy, but when you know why a villain is the way he or she is, you do, or at least I do, tend to sympathize more if and only if their origin gives us a glimpse into the person Not being a villain, but sort of forced into it, like kind of what Megan was talking about with Lawless Lawyer, if that makes sense. Lee Rim in King is a great villain and has great motivation for being the villain that he is. But I in no way sympathize with him because no one did him dirty in order to turn him that way. He was just the jealous bastard who wanted what was never rightfully his and went to, you know, all lengths to get it and killed lots of people so yeah i do love a good origin story it won't always make me sympathize with the villain but if it is an emotional origin story then sure i'll have some emotion invested in it but i still don't excuse their their villainous acts k-dramas love they love their bastards
1: Like <laughs> we get they do so many dramas with like evil bastard children that grow up to be evil bastard adults anyway yeah i mean i love a good origin story i love in either dramas or i think it's done a lot in american movies uh american like horror or whatever where they'll show kind of the turning point on why the villain kind of turned bad like usually there's kind of like one sort of catalyst even I mean or a series of things that led up to it and I always love that I I always do want to know a villain's motivation and showing maybe something that happened to them as kids or something like that I mean because there's a difference between sympathy and empathy so I think I can like sympathize with a villain but not feel what they are feeling right you know what i mean so i can like sympathize with their motivations but also still want them to suffer for what they've done
2: as you were saying this i just realized something which is interesting so i wrote it down really fast so i didn't forget but i guess you were done talking so anyway um (laughs) segue one thing where the bastard is flipped really interesting though is in crash landing because seri is the bastard and instead of becoming the villain (sighs) She's You're actually right. the hero and like the true born brothers are actually the baddies. So that's kind You're of
0: right. I for- yeah, I also, yeah. you haven't seen it yet. Also The oh, main yeah. host character is a bastard as well. And he is not a villain.
1: Good. Good job, no, K-Dramas, but... for being nice to the pastors.
2: Yeah, so there we go. I'd say it's normally a convention, but yeah, like some, when it flips, it can be, yeah, it can be good. No, would like a word. And yeah, I was thinking, like, I kind of wish we, there's lots of things I wish happened in Tale of the Nine-Tailed, but it would have been nice to have seen, like, a little bit of a flashback. We get Amugi's backstory just through, like, his deadpan delivery of his backstory, So yeah, I'd say that I wasn't having like a lot of emotional reaction. I do wish we kind of could have had some flashbacks of like, you know, the baby, like zooming in on like the eye of the baby, like, oh no, (laughs) like it's (laughs) all going wrong for me. Um, I would have maybe felt a little worse, but like, yeah, that didn't hit me. A bad guy, not K-Drama Land, but like a bad guy whose origin story has kind of always gotten to me. And it's not just because it's Tom Hardy is Bane from Batman's The Dark Knight. I felt like he had a pretty good origin story for being a bad guy of, you know, being raised in this hellish prison in the desert and not being able to like see the light until he was an adult and then kind of like joining forces with like this other baddie is kind of like her protector. And that's a time I could think that I had sympathy because of the backstory, even though he was like a murderer in like modern times. His path yeah, was... I adore Bane
1: like i don't i mean bane's terrible i mean yeah. like blows it's like up that problematic
2: stadium. crush like i know that it's like in real life yeah leah like doesn't want to get with bane but like in yeah imagination
1: <laughs> life <laughs> i mean as tom hardy like tom hardy is like uh everything so i agree tom hardy or i'm sorry bane and the movie the dark knight rises i thought it did a really great job I mean, that is one thing that, you know, comics do very well is they really do a good job with their villains. And I thought Bane was fantastic. I mean, I thought he was more compelling than Christian Bale's. Oh, yeah. Batman. I loved that. Yeah. And I mean, Bane was the star of that. Well, Tom um, Hardy
2: is a good villain. Tom Hardy was a good villain. And so I'm just blanking on whatever the Leonardo DiCaprio star vehicle was that he finally got that Oscar for.
1: Oh, um, um, b- 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 the rather- Bear one. Wasn't it? Reza, Reza something. Resonance? Revenant. Resonate? Revenant. 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 I'm like, it's the <laughs> And then Peaky, Peaky Blinders. Tom Hardy
2: is an amazing villain. Oh, my God. Probably my favorite Tom Hardy villain is the Peaky Blinders villain.
1: Oh, Peaky Blinders. Just, Peaky I mean. Peaky Blinders. Peaky full Blinders. Sum, I feel like
2: that is a show, not K-drama, that, like, I think everyone should watch.
1: Yes. That was probably the one show that I watched that I felt could hold a candle to, like, some of the K-dramas. I adore Peaky Blinders and I mean m- most of it's like Killian Murphy because he is just so freaking good and the villains all the villains in that show are good <laughs> so we are going to bring up now some honorable mentions so we want to say the drama first just because these might be a little spoilery we already mentioned Suspicious Partner but the villain that all three of us really enjoy his name is Jung Hyun Su, and he's played by Dong Ha
0: We'll talk a lot about him when we get to that drama. He's fantastic, but I don't think there's a lot that we can say right now without... Agreed. Huge spoilers. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Let's wait and talk about him, but let's just say he's amazing. And we're going to be talking about Suspicious Partner in a few weeks. So if you want to watch Suspicious Partner, we all recommend it. It, it, it It was a really great drama. So watch it, so then you can enjoy the villain with us, and then you can talk about it.
0: Yeah, as I say, that's one of the biggest reasons why I didn't choose him for this episode is because you can't talk about him without ruining that entire drama. And I didn't want to do that.
2: And another hero I wanted to mention. No, hero. Oh, God. No, not hero. Horrible (laughs) villain that I wanted to mention is from a drama that I probably will be referencing an awful lot on the podcast moving forward. But we will not deep dive because I am not willing to traumatize Amy for the rest. Thank you. I am hoping Megan will watch it though. And that is Strangers from Hell, which I am 15 minutes away from finishing. And Lee Dong Wook plays Seo Moon Jo, the psychopathic, murdering, cannibalistic dentist. And yeah, I think it's an amazing performance. It's kind of like the villain is horrible, but kind of like this chaotic evil that is almost like that idea of like, our villains made, not born? You'd almost say that like given... The high-pressure, high-stakes, dog-eat-dog world of, like, modern soul that a character like Seo Moon-jo in The Shadows is kind of like that chaotic anarchist evil that is there to, like help people who live in shadows who are not seen as you know they're the outcasts of society kind of bringing them together in a way that gives them power back and that power is through murder (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah whatever like if you're into making uh bracelets of human teeth and dingling them around in your torture dungeons like Lee Dong Wook really just commits to that
1: Okay, and so I think I've mentioned now in the last two podcasts that I'm obsessed with Ahn Hyun, and he is the villain or one of the villains in Itawan class, and I want to give him an honorable mention because I adored him. So he and his father are the villains in Itawan class, and his father, he was a well-done character as well. He had a great why, great motivation. They get into his origin story. And as much as I disliked him, he had a very good, believable origin story. Like, I understood why he made the decisions he made. But his son was more complicated. So, his son was played by An Byo Hyun. And uh, he was so complicated. And part of it was because of his upbringing. And anytime they show a villain who's like shaped by their parent, in a negative way that always hits me really hard. So the origin story of Guan Wan was, you know right away that he's the villain, so this isn't like any sort of spoiler, but... And I'm just going to say that there is a scene that involves a chicken. And I see this mentioned tons on, like, blogs, so I don't really think I'm saying anything that's too spoilery, but that scene with him and a chicken is, I don't know how you can watch that scene and not feel very conflicting emotions for him. Because you know he's kind of a bad person, and he's probably not going to ever be a good person, but you also are still really sympathetic about how he was raised. And so it just, uh, it was rough. It was rough. I mean... I do think that there's a point with villains where what does he do they... to the freaking chicken? Just tell me. <laughs> oh, well, he kills the chicken. He has to kill the chicken. Oh, but okay, <laughs> this is the thing. There's nothing. I mean, I eat chicken. There's not. So I, I'm just going to explain the scene because it's actually not. It's not really that spoilery. So, you know, people like kill animals to eat them. So it's not. But the point wasn't to kill this chicken to eat it. His dad basically takes him to like the chickens outside and is like. You need to understand that you're I forget the words that are used, but essentially he's saying you have to like you're the predator and you can decide what to do with the prey like that and you can decide to kill them. And what he's basically saying is we are the predators like we're rich, we're powerful, and we can decide the lives of the little people. So like, you know, the poor or the less fortunate. So he's like, you need to you need to kill this chicken. If you want to be the CEO and you want to be my son, you need to you need to kill this chicken. And he's 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 in high school at the time and he doesn't want to do it. I mean, you could the scene is acted so well. He doesn't want to kill the chicken. And it's really traumatizing. And he does. I mean, he like snaps the neck of the chicken and he like lets out this like agonized cry. But he's like also trying to be tough. Like he's trying to be like, yeah, I can do this. But it's also just a little desperate. It's acted so well. It's just fantastic. So all throughout the drama, you're like, oh, my God, like, did you have a chance? But I always think that there's a point in the villain's life where they decide if they are going to kind of grow up like there's a decision where, okay, am I going to keep letting how I was raised dictate moving forward or am I going to be a better person? And there was a point in Wan class where Guan Wan could make the decision, and you have to watch the drama to see what he chooses. But I always think those are interesting points in a villain's life as well. And that was so Itawan class, I had some issues with overall, but not with On Byohyun's character. I actually, again, find, found that that villain was a really great part of the drama.
0: And we have some villains that we didn't love, but we want to give them mentions and, and kind of to give the idea of why, and there's not really much to say except that these were kind of one-note villains.
2: First yeah. one that I gave as a shout-out to, look, I thought that the actress did a good job with what she was given. I just think that the character was not very well-developed. And that comes from, it's okay to not be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that is Park Hayoung jaw aka Evil Mom, aka Nurse Face-Off. <laughs> spoiler i'll give you three seconds to split ahead if you don't want to listen to the spoiler one two three she essentially escapes kind of the quasi murder that her husband tried to offer for being i guess psycho (laughs) and yeah she got her own face off and like completely plastic surgery herself into a new person and has been living and working in her hometown for quite some time. And no one knows who she is,
0: but there was no backstory. No,
2: there's no that reason you, you, ever, you know why yeah. she was a yeah. psychopath who wanted to raise her daughter to be a psychopath.
0: Right. And even less depth would be Gu Jun Pio's mom in boys over flowers. Like she just is an evil controlling mom. And for no apparent reason, then just we're rich this girl you like is not. I don't want her in your life. I have plans for you, and you're going to do what I say. And no backstory, no reason why, and never ever shows affection for her son, even when he is in the hospital with amnesia.
2: And okay, <laughs> let's just, and just two, two other points. Well, one other point to this that I do want to bring up is that we find out she's been hiding her
0: comatose yes. oh, God, hiding I forgot for
2: yes. the entire show, and you know Lee Ming Ho thinks his dad is dead but just kidding he's just like comatose in the secret room and then he like wakes up at the end and the only time we see her and we assume that things have gotten better she's like watching him on tv at one point like coming into his own with her husband next to her on the couch like laughing (laughs) Right? Like, that it's was, so like, weird. a resolution. So weird. Yes. But in Meteor Garden, which is, like, the most recent remake of that Boys Over flower story, we have an evil mom, too. But I felt like at the end, they kind of gave her at least... I mean, it's not... Super satisfying, but they gave her some reasons as to why she's been acting like this. And then she essentially kind of hits this like eat, pray, love like, well, now that I can trust you, I'm handing over the company and like off to travel and see the world and take an extended vacation because I'm worth it. And I mean, like, look, that's all it needed was something like that. Like, somebody clearly with Meteor Garden was like, whatever happened with that other character, like, no, just no.
1: Yeah. So the villain I didn't like was the evil ex-girlfriend from 1% of something. And I have to be honest, that character, the way it was written, ruined the entire drama for me. And I think I gave it like a two or something because while the romance was okay, the conflict with the villain was just so contrived that it just ruined it. She was very one note. She just wanted the... Hero back, so they could like merge their companies, but they didn't show anything of her. She just kept showing up to the company, being like, "Let's get married," and he was like, "No, I don't want to." And it it was was, like really repetitive. And then at one point, she like, I mean, I'm not. There's no point in me even saying spoiler. Like in my opinion, the drama was uh, whatever. But she like kidnaps the heroine, and it's like so stupid. Like because he's like, what did you expect to happen? Like (laughs) it was just like it was really just stupid. It was stupid. That's all I got to say. And she was just so boring as a villain. I just I wish they would have done literally anything else to create conflict in that drama other than her.
0: Okay, well, why don't we close things out by talking about some romance book recommendations that have noteworthy villains?
2: Okay, so I am going to recommend a book that I feel like it's a little bit of a bait and switch because this is a it's a trilogy again, and it's a villain who eventually becomes a hero. So whatever, I'm just doing it because it's a good book. (laughs) I'm doing it too. Okay. It's
0: all right. (laughs) So, I
2: am recommending the Captive Prince series by C.S. Picot. This is one of my favorite trilogies. And part of the reason I think it's so good is that the villain who becomes a hero is essentially like part of this fictional court called Vere. And he's beautiful. He's manipulative. He's deadly. And he becomes the master of basically like a slave that he is allowed to do with whatever he wants with it. Like, all privileges entailed although he doesn't do much with the slave except for like be a real dick to him all the time and we find out that the slave well because we're in like the slaves pov is Damon, who is this warrior hero who is heir to another throne which is the arch enemy of Vare, which is, I think it's called like Achielos. And after his half-brother seizes power, another one of those bastards coming to get power, Damon gets captured, is stripped of his identity, and is sent to become the slave to the prince of an enemy nation. And his big drama is that he actually killed Laurent, our villain prince's brother, in battle some time ago. And it's a love story between them, eventually, like they fall in love, but Laurent has had a very difficult and horrible childhood at the hands of his uncle who's the regent and has been very twisted and is essentially kind of like just fighting for his own survival in the court and so you get more reasons why he's kind of such a dick as the books go on until eventually like he kind of like comes into his own through love and changes and they can like team up to like defeat the real baddies. So that is Captive Prince Trilogy by C.S. Picot.
0: And I'm kind of going along the same lines with like, you know, because we're talking about books that have romance in them. I like the idea of a villain who can possibly turn into a hero. So I'm doing Cruel Beauty, which is by Rosamond Hodge. And it is a Beauty and the Beast retelling. And I'm going to read the blur because it's been years since I've read this book. But it was the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking of a book with a good villain that's also a romance. And here it is. Betrothed to the evil ruler of her kingdom, Nyx has always known that her fate was to marry him, kill him, and free her people from his tyranny. But on her 17th birthday, when she moves into his castle, high on the kingdom's mountaintop, nothing is what she expected, particularly her charming and beguiling new husband. Nyx knows she must save her homeland at all costs, yet she can't resist the pull of her sworn enemy, who's gotten in her way by stealing her heart. So in this book, our heroine Nyx is promised to this beast that sort of lords over the kingdom that everybody's terrified of. She's promised to him when she is old enough to be wed in exchange for, I believe it is a sibling's life. So basically her parents like trade her for another sibling. And she is raised to be an assassin because... The whole kingdom is kind of being held captive and lots of bad stuff is going down because of this beast in this weird sort of haunted castle. And as soon as she turns 17, which is when she was supposed to be handed over to him, she has to willingly just go to him and marry him. And it is weird and twisted. I guess it is considered a teen novel because our heroine is 17, but it doesn't read like one to me. And Leah, I think you read it too, mm-hmm, so you, I, ho- it I hope you can agree that it it is... It doesn't read like a YA novel. It definitely has you guessing who is really the bad guy throughout kind of thing. And it is a very complicated hero slash villain type of situation with the beast, as is all Beauty and the Beast tales. But this is really well done and very, very different than any sort of Disnified version.
1: Okay, so this isn't really a romance, and I don't really care because this is my favorite villain of anything I've read. So yeah, my favorite villain of all time pretty much is Jamie Lannister from the Song of Fire and Ice series by George R.R. Martin most commonly known here in the States is the Game of Thrones series. I'm not talking about the show. Okay. <laughs> the show is like Voldemort. We don't talk about it, but the books. So I know that the series is not over. I don't care because in my mind, I've already written Jamie's entire story, but he is a total villain. I mean, he he is a villain. I mean, in the first book, he like pushes a child out the window and Paralyzes him for life. But Jaime has really fascinating motivations. I love the fact that he's been labeled the King Slayer and is sort of dishonored, but yet his reasons for slaying the king actually were noble. I know that he has sex with his twin. <laughs> I know.
2: Gosh, really? We're into like a lot of incest on this show. I know. Right? Sorry. We talked about <laughs> incest
1: last... I know. He is a true villain, but I don't... In the show, he ended a villain, but I I don't know. I don't think... I think he, he does have a redemption arc, like George R.R. R. Martin has started a redemption arc. Part of me isn't sure if he's still going to end fully redeemed. I don't necessarily think he will, but I do think he'll have a satisfying ending in the books. But he's just my favorite villain of all time. I Honestly, I was looking through my romance books and... I just couldn't. Nothing stuck out to me, and I was like, I guess I got to talk about Jamie because Jamie Lannister is my all-time favorite villain that I've read ever. I pretty much kept reading those books for him and Jon Snow. So yeah, that's it. So Game of Thrones, Jamie Lannister.
0: <laughs> so what's everybody watching right now?
1: So I just finished Into the Ring, and I am going to make Amy and Leah watch it because it was such a true gem i feel like i haven't had a lot of i haven't heard a lot of people talk about it and it was really delightful the romance was really slow burn and on the surface i was i I didn't think i would like it it's basically like about a woman who's running for her like town council and I'm like, oh, like local politics. But it's not really what it's about. There's so many universal themes. And I would call it a small town romance or small town drama with a romance. That is what it is. There, there is just so much you care about. You, you, you care about all the characters, all the little, all the townspeople, you you just, you're rooting for the heroine the whole time. She reminded me a lot of the heroine in Suspicious Partner. She has so much guts. I mean, she's just really fantastic. And I loved how there would be like dialogue or events that seemed really meaningless. And then as the drama went on, you realized, oh, I said on! I said on! I said on! Did you hear that? Oh. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay, as the drama went on, you realized that that, like even like one one word choice was said for a reason and so it felt like there were a lot of like easter eggs thrown in and a lot of like you know i, I really enjoyed that It felt very smart to me and yeah and the romance itself was very sweet i mean i adored it very much the hero was basically the most perfect life partner <laughs> supportive life partner i've like seen he was like ryan gold very non-toxic and
0: supportive and lovely
1: So next I'm going to watch My Love from the Star because we're going to be doing a deep dive on that. So I have to, I'm starting that like ASAP.
0: I'm watching nothing right now. So (laughs) I finished Suspicious Partner over the weekend and I have had a crazy week and haven't had a chance to start a new drama. But next on my list is When the Camellia Blooms, which we will do a deep dive on early this summer. I'm looking forward to that.
2: My sister is watching it right now and loving it, which makes me so happy. Yay! So I have, like I said before, like 20 minutes maybe left on Strangers from Hell. And I'm just going to do like a quick bio of it because I think that we will not be deep diving it. But for those of you who do like psychological like thrillers, this is probably like up there with like the top of the tops. And so we just did a deep dive on Run On where we talked about the actor Siwon. So Siwon plays a young guy in his 20s who moves from the countryside to Seoul because his college friend offers him a job. And while he's looking for a place to live, he really has like no money. He stumbles upon this place called Eden, which is a cheap hostel that shares the kitchen and bathroom with other residents. It is very very tired. It has no air conditioning. It is very very hot in Seoul. He's really not thrilled about the quality of the place or the other residents who seem rather abnormal. Understatement, such as his next door neighbor Seo Moon Jo, who is a charismatic dentist who works. And owns a very nice dental practice, so it seems very odd he's in this absolute shithole of a cheap hostel. Nevertheless, Siwan decides he's got no money, he's going to put up with everything for six months, save money to move out. However, shit starts to go down. (laughs) <laughs> like some killing <laughs> like some killing and then when this is over i'm kind of debating i do want to watch hundred days by prince but i think megan was up for that so we might buddy watch that together amy has been wanting to watch reply 1988 and we're talking about maybe doing a buddy watch about that in summer so that i'm kind of kicking off for you know another bit so i think right now it's either going to be for me vincenzo getting on that bandwagon i think it's called me sang which has Siwon again. I guess I'm turning into like a Siwon fangirl. And it also has Kong Ha Newell or Flower of Evil. So it's going to be one of those three. It's just going to depend on my mood. I think I might wait on Flower of Evil just because I just had a lot of murdering. And so right. I think I might I, go for not that Vincenzo doesn't, but it's a different kind of murdering when it's mafia. Right.
1: Yeah. I think Flower of Evil, I heard it's fantastic, but I, I think it's pretty intense. Whereas Vincenzo, I have heard has a I mean, has a lot of like humor, which I'm like, as soon as I know the last episode is airing, I I will watch Vincenzo. I'm all about it. I just want to be able to binge it because, you know, me.
2: Yeah, I think we're really close. That's why I'm willing to jump in. But I'm not yeah. sure. So anyway, that's what I've got right now on the my drama list. I pulled it up to see.
0: And next week, I am so excited. We are finally going to deep dive the King Eternal Monarch. So I'm just, yeah, I'm talking about Lee Min Ho a lot these past couple of episodes, and I am enjoying it immensely.
1: I can't wait to talk about Maximus and Wudo Hwan. Oh my are- gosh, Do Wan, Absolutely. Uh- so I'm going to, just like I hijacked her private life with Namugi. Nam well, let
2: let Amy have some Lee Minho no. time.
1: No, I know. <laughs> Amy gets <laughs> her. Wording. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's only fair. Uh, Amy gets <laughs> to have her complete Lee Ho. But I I mean, I did love him too. I mean, him on Maximus is just something else. And so. we'll talk
0: about that next week. Yay! So that is it for today, everybody. Thanks for hanging with us. Anya. Kamsahamnida! Thank you for listening to Afternoon Delight. Make sure to subscribe for more great K-Romance conversation. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Afternoon Delight Podcast for more information on our podcast, behind the scenes photos, and of course, pics of our favorite opas and anis. Annyeong!